and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this evening. Ephesians chapter 4. We are uh, continuing our series called The Church That Jesus Longs For. And uh, what we're doing in this series is uh, we're trying to get an apostle's vision for what it means to be the church. And so we're looking at um, some of Paul's greatest hits in his letters. And I just want you to imagine this with me, if you would, for a moment. Imagine that Paul invited you over to his house for dinner. And uh, you're at Paul's house for dinner, and the dinner, he's like, you know what, I got it simmering. We can just kind of enjoy the house. You want a house tour? You're like, of course, I've always wanted to know what Paul's house looks like. And so he takes you through his house, and you end up in his office, and you know that there's some nicely framed fragments of papyrus up on the wall behind his desk. And they're nicely lit, and you're like, wow, those must be important. Paul, what are those original manuscripts? Like, what exactly are these? And he's like, oh, these? Well, these are my greatest hits. These are, the, these are the, my favorite parts of all of my letters that I wrote to various churches in the first century. And what we're doing is if we could get an insight into Paul's mind for the church, what would his greatest hits be? What would they be? Tonight we have one right in front of us, Ephesians chapter 4, and we start in verse 7. It says this, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Speaking of Jesus, verse 9. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended to the, the, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to do what? Verse 12, equip his people, or in the ESV, equip the saints for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body joined to and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its own work. Tonight, I want to put forth that the church Jesus longs for is a church that empowers and protects. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're not taking notes, write that down. The church Jesus longs for is a church that empowers and it protects. And, and what I want to do to start this out this evening is I want to do a little bit of a thought experiment with you. So this is going to be internal, no need to get vocal with it. Um, I'm going to say a few words, and when I say them, I want you to internally, personally, subjectively discern the emotion that comes to the surface. Okay, you ready? Power. Government. Leadership. The church. How are you guys feeling? Triggered? <laughs> Why? Why do we laugh? We laugh because there may be no more hot-button issue than leadership, governance, and power today. 
Who has the power? How did they get it? Do they deserve it? Should we take it from them? They don't need it. They need it, right? Uh, This is what Jim Trout says. He says this, leadership doesn't build character. It reveals it. See, power doesn't corrupt. It reveals the motivations of the heart without any veiled intentions. So you think that power corrupts, but all that it does is it just lets you do what you've longed to do deep down inside without any consequences, right? And that's why you see such failure in leadership around the world, because when the goal of someone's life has been power and leadership rather than character, they often don't have the character needed to use their power to empower and protect others rather than protecting their power. Recently, I've just been captured by this podcast called The Dropout. I think we have like a photo of it. Maybe you've heard of this podcast. Um, but it's, it's about this gal named Elizabeth Holmes who dropped out of Stanford and raised hundreds of millions of dollars. She built this company called Theranos. And uh, the goal of this company was to develop devices that with one drop of blood could run over 50 tests for various diseases or abnormalities, which is really unheard of. Normally, it takes a lot more blood than just a dropout. Uh, in order to do that. And what ends up happening with her company is that the device that they create cannot really deliver what they had promised that it could do. But instead of putting a halt to the fundraising and marketing, instead of like kind of walking back a little bit and, and doing some soul searching, they hire an enforcer to create a workplace culture of fear so that nobody spills the beans. They spend more money on faking the tests by masking other companies' machines with their logos And they essentially perpetuate the sham in order to maintain an image, in order to maintain their power, and in order to keep the money that's been given to them. Now, you hear a story about like that, and you're like, what else is new, right? Like, what else is new? Or or how about within the church? I think we have maybe another photo up here. Um, Just two weeks ago, the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio uh, Express News collected 380 allegations spanning 20 states of sexual misconduct within the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, these are uh, photos of people um, who have actually confessed, 220 of them confessed to, the, um, to, to um, sexual abuse. Just horrific stories of manipulative youth pastors uh, to hostile work environments, um, just a real reckoning within the Southern Baptist Church. You can go ahead and take that down if you hadn't already. Um, now, I'm sure that you're sitting here this evening, and many of you, you even carry with you stories of less obvious examples of bad leadership within the church, whether it's manipulation in order to remain in power or dogmatism to prove who's really you know, loyal in that church or prioritizing the church's uh, organizational structure instead of the presence of God. Um, we all have experienced bad leadership. Uh, Many leadership failures are a result, I think, of this. Twisting the purpose from protecting and empowering people to protecting the power itself. Bad leadership either doesn't empower you so that you get tossed back and forth between mere opinions of the culture without any sense of identity or worth, or it overprotects you so that adherence to uniformity is how family is determined and you never really discover how God created you uniquely to be a gift to the church. Both are leadership failures. So, here's what I'm after this evening. What I want to do is I want to look at how God governs. And I want to talk about government in general. Not our country's government, but the fact that anytime there is leadership, there is governance at play. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a boss, whether you're an RA, whether you, re- you manage some kind of team, there is government happening in that place. 
Um, and, and so I, I actually think the scriptures have a lot to say about how we are governed by God and how that translates to how we govern. So you guys ready? We're going to do a little bit of a Bible survey, a little bit of, of, of like a theological nerd out. So put your thinking caps on. We need to get, as a church, a biblical vision of governance. So let's start at the beginning of this text, and let's work our, our way all the way up to Paul. So Genesis chapter 1. What is Genesis 1 style governance? Um, like, think about this. In the garden, Adam and Eve are being governed by God. How does he do it? Well, um, I like to call this style of governance, if you know the story, two-tree governance. Two-tree governance. Um, it says in the, in, the, in the scriptures that God said to the man, you can eat from any of these trees. In fact, I'm putting a very special tree in the middle called the tree of life. You can have the fruit from that tree as well. But there is one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that I don't want you to eat from, so don't eat from that tree. Now, what kind of governance is that? What is it? Well, I think what he, he, the way that God primarily governs in Genesis is this, choice. He governs through choice. You are empowered, Adam and Eve were empowered to feel the consequences naturally and spiritually of their choice, period. And, and, this is, and, and what this teaches us is that this is how God governs humanity generally, is he gives them choice. We should, we should be skeptical of any leadership that removes personal responsibility and limits choice. This was not how God designed humans to be governed. God so believed in this style of leadership because he so believed in the dignity and power of human choice. In fact, he placed the initial success of his kingdom project in the choice of humanity. He's like, I have an idea, but I'm going to give you a choice to see if you'll follow through. Choose his version of, of, of reality, choose his version for humanity, and flourishing would spread his rule and reign throughout the entire world. They had a choice. Or choose to believe the liar, that serpent that got into the garden, and you will spread his dominion. And we all know how the story ends up. The, the next kind of piece of governance that we see in the text is we see Abraham. How is Abraham governed? And what we see with Abraham is really the first personal relationship with God. And the model of leadership that God gives us here is this, personal relationship and obedience leading to the correct choice. He doesn't override Abraham's choice, but he says, I have an idea for you. I want to bless you, but it's going to require obedience in order for me to bless you and bless the world through you. The desire of God was to bless through governance. It was his idea. I'm going to bless you as your governor so that you can spread that good governance, which spreads my goodness, to the rest of the world through God's governance. Ne next we see is uh, Leviticus-style governance, which is pretty different than Abraham-style governance, right? Um, in the book of Leviticus, we see the people of God are given a general law for keeping themselves separate for God and dedicated to his will. Uh, Paul, in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, in, cha in chapter 3, he says, The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Okay, what, what, is, he, what is he talking about? Well, it's, it's almost like this. Here's kind of what Paul is getting at. He's like, the, the law in Leviticus that you read that's so confusing and wacky and bizarre it's really a good thing because what it acted like is almost like a nanny that led God's people 
in response to their actions, led them to place their trust and, and have relationship with God in the same way that Moses had had relationship with God in the same way that Abraham had had relationship with God. So here's kind of the imagery that I like to think about when it comes to the law. Um, uh, my wife was a nanny for many years. And it, it, imagine that if you're a nanny and you're tasked to watch three boys, you're going to want to put some boundaries in place, right? So let's say that you go over to their house. It's 5 o'clock. Parents are going out for a date or something like that. And you, you go to their house and you say, okay, look, you guys can play outside. I know your friends are outside. You can play outside, but don't run into the street. And so you're like, oh, they're like, okay, okay. So they run outside and they, they're playing outside and they're, they're throwing the ball around. And, and you look out the window and all of a sudden one of them runs right under the street. You're like, I just told them don't run out into the street. Okay, I can't trust them. All right, hey guys, come on in here. Okay, you can play in the backyard because I told you not to run out into the street and you ran out into the street. So you're playing in the backyard now, but here's the deal. See that big pile of dirt over there? Just don't get into the dirt. Don't get muddy. And so the boys go in the backyard and they're playing in the backyard and they're having a good time. And eventually you look out the window and you see... They're, they've got mud, like dirt clods, and they're just hucking them at each other, and they're getting completely muddy. I just told them not to get muddy. Okay, I guess I can't trust you in the backyard. All right, guys, you're coming inside. When you read the book of Leviticus, it's fascinating. There's many different points where the Israelites do something, and God goes, oh, that's actually not my intention, and he creates a law to create a new boundary to tutor them, to nanny them into correct obedience and relationship with him. That's what we see in the book of Leviticus. Now, lastly, we get to Jesus. This is, the, the book of Leviticus and, and the person of Jesus govern completely differently, right? M many of you know this. In fact, Jesus was upset by the model of governance that lacked heart-to-heart -heart relationship with the Father. And so it's one of the things that he comes to do is to give us relationship. And so he, in a sense, what Jesus does is he raises the bar to show that you must be connected to God like Abraham in order to live life well. But here's the thing about Jesus. My wife and I were just talking about this. He doesn't really fit into any model of leadership that we've seen before. I, I, we were joking. We were on a walk this week, and I was like, yeah, Jesus is like a dictator. Once you get in with Jesus, he just like, you know, it's his way or the highway. And she's like, oh, yeah, but then he also died for you. What kind of dictator dies for you, Right? See, we don't have a model of leadership that exists in the world like Jesus. That's why we have to make up a term. He's the cruciform king. He's the cruciform king. He's like, you know what shape my kingship is going to take? I'll die for you. Just incredible. Jesus doesn't govern us into law or duty, but he woos us. He wins us. <laughs> and to anybody who he has really won, you'll know this to be true, you'll give anything to him. You're like, you've won me. I'm yours. Whatever you want from my life, it's yours, right? Jesus governs like a king, but one that gave everything to make you a subject. And once you are a subject, here's the rule of his governance. Obedience leads to life. Taking up your cross and following him, walking in the ways of discipleship to our rabbi, that leads to life. So what do we learn about God as a leader? We learn this. God increases choice and personal responsibility, period. Obedience and trust in him leads to life. When you lay your rights down and make him king, a life of getting loved is the result. Now, um, in our text tonight, Paul gives us some specific instructions for how disciples of Jesus are to function as his body here on earth in this current age. And here's Paul's vision for us as a church. It's this, equip the saints. 
equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul is convinced that what Jesus Christ has done on the cross accomplishes the prayer of John 17, that we would be one with God spiritually, rather than seeing governance simply as a necessary structure in order to quell bad behavior, Paul sees the governance of God ruling us, and that governance is extending his goodness through us to the world. It's a very good thing. And I believe that this passage perfectly outlines the heart of a good government, which is this. Every good government has two aims, to empower and to protect. Every good government, whether you're a parent, whether you're a business leader, whether you're an RA, whether you lead a team, every good government has two aims, and it is to empower and it is to protect. So let's work through the text, and I want to show you how Paul talks about these various gifts that are designed to empower and protect within the church. Look down at your Bibles at verse 11 in chapter 4 of Ephesians. It says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In the ESV, this is how that passage reads. It says this, And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to do what? Equip the who? The saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, this is fascinating to me. What are the gifts that Christ is giving, right? Because it says so in verse 11, so Christ himself gave. And then if you actually rewind a little bit in verse 8, it says this. This is why it says when he ascended, Jesus ascended, he took many captives. But it says this randomly, he gave gifts to his people. What are the gifts that he's giving? Well, well, the gift is this. It's when a man or a woman full of the Holy Spirit functions in various roles. And here are the roles laid out for us. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. The people who function in these roles are gifts to the church because they're designing the way God intends to empower and protect his people. And from the text, these gifts are given by Christ to empower and protect us. So we should pay attention to them. I want to show you how they do that. So first I want to talk about empowerment. Now, um, if you're a millennial here this evening, you know this to be especially true. We have a huge empowerment wound today. Just an empowerment wound. I can't tell you how many times I hear a young person in the church say, you know, I had to leave that church because they just weren't empowering me there. Which is a little bit funny because as co-heirs with Christ, with the power of the resurrection coursing through our veins, you would think most people would feel pretty empowered. (laughs) But it is true that the role of all of you, not just me, all of us, is to discover our unique gift to the church for the common good that we might build one another up, attaining full measure of what it means to be in Christ, walking in truth, or that, we dis- or that we use our gift that we already know we have, we've discovered it, to actually do the same as well. And Paul lists these five types of people who God designated as his gifts to the church. Now, why? Well, let's talk a little bit about each of them. First, the apostle. What is an apostle? Well, this word apostle is apostolos in Greek, and it is a Roman military term. 
And the fascinating thing about this is that Jesus could have used any term for his church leaders, but he chooses this word very specifically. He could have reached back into Jewish history and talked about, I'm going to give you patriarchs, or I'm going to give you prophets, or I'm going to you know, do something like that. But instead, he says, for those of you who are here with me today, these 12 disciples, I'm naming you apostles for a very specific reason, because what it meant to be an apostle was to take Rome's culture to another foreign city and make that city look like Rome. That's what it meant. It was a Roman military guard uh, who would actually go to a new city that had just been conquered and would make that city. Here's how we're going to do our columns. Here's the kind of art that we're going to display. Hey, I got a great show. It's coming to town. It's a new Roman production. You're going to love it. And, And that's what an apostle would do. So what does an apostle do within the church? An apostle is somebody who their primary aim is to see heaven become the dominant culture in their city. That's their primary aim. So what happens when you get around someone who is an apostle or who's apostolic? You start seeing your unique gifting to the church and kingdom more clearly. You start dreaming bigger dreams about the kingdom than you ever dared to hope or dream about the kingdom. You start thinking with a renewed mind, oh, but what if God did this? What if he did this? Oh, what if heaven came in this way? What about the prophet? Well, the primary focus of the prophet is revealing God's intentions in specific seasons and with specific people. What happens when you get around a prophet is that you start getting clarity around what God intends to do. Seasons are never marked with depression or purposelessness, but rather every moment is an opportunity for kingdom expansion. When I hang around Andoni, it's like, I never saw that before. You're right. I've been wasting my time. Oh my gosh, let's go after that. Because Andoni is incredibly prophetic. When I hang around Jake, we were just talking about this today. It's like, we almost can't think about the present because we're so focused on, here's what God's going to do. Here's what he plans to do. Because you just get around the, somebody who's prophetic and it's like, oh, I, I just, I, I can't, I don't, I'm, all my hopelessness just went out the window. I'm looking to what you're doing, Lord. When you get around the evangelist, what happens? The evangelist's primary focus is bringing more into the kingdom. I just heard of a church recently. Their motto is this, we want to make heaven more crowded. It's awesome. That's the heart of an evangelist. That's what an evangelist longs for. When you get around an evangelist, they make you hunger and desire for new people to get a hold of the life that Jesus has on offer. You know, this is, if there's one gift that I'm excited about raising up in our church, it's evangelists. I just believe that there's people in this room who you're like, I've seen evangelism done wacky. I've seen it been like, like kind of weird and manipulative. I just believe that God wants to do a new thing through signs and wonders and convincing people's hearts before he gets their minds. And we re- I really believe we're going to raise up evangelists in this church. Uh, next on the, on the, in the text is shepherds or pastors. Um, their primary focus is the care of those who are in Christ. They're like, you're in Christ? Awesome. I want to meet with you. I want to love you. I want to, I want to care for you. Their, their primary concern is I want to mature those who are in Christ. When you get around a pastor, you feel heard. You feel cared for. You feel like, man, maybe everything is going to be okay. Love pastors. Um, and then finally on the list is teachers. Teachers, their primary focus is correct doctrine. The truth must win out and people must understand the truth. When you get around a teacher, your mind expands. Your understanding of who God is gets bigger and the beauty of the scriptures is revealed. 
just all, can you imagine a church that has all of those gifts? Like we got apostles over here, we got prophets over here, we have evangelists, we have pastors, we have teachers, and they are, their primary goal is, I can't wait to empower the people around me to use, to, to use the, what I have to go out and see their city change. I, I can't wait for it, guys. I really can't. Now, um, a couple of questions come up when we read a passage uh, like this one, because this passage has been one of uh, many debates in the past. So here's kind of my best stab at things. This is Alex speaking, not the Lord, just to clarify. So, uh, does everyone have a corresponding gift in this list to their life and personality? Can you take like a spiritual gifts assessment, and each one of you, if you were to really get down to who you are inside, you find yourself on this list? Uh, the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> like maybe, I, I don't know. I remember taking in uh, one of my classes at Fox when I was in college, we had like a spiritual gifts assessment. And, uh, and I think it was like something that I don't, like it gave me a gift. I'm like, I don't even, I, I can't see that at all in myself. Um, so, so maybe, I don't know. Uh, how do you become one of these sorts of gifts to the church. Here's the truth, guys. We do not chase titles. We chase surrender. We don't seek a title. Just be who God made you to be. Model your life after Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So here's the deal. What do you specifically see the Father doing? Do that. Because the the truth is this, is that you may see the Father doing something that I'm not seeing him doing. And so we actually need you to not be like, I only, I just wish my church would do this thing that I'm passionate about. It's like, if you're passionate about it, go and do it. That's how we be the church. Does every church have an apostle, an evangelist, a prophet, a teacher, a pastor? Um, Hopefully. I, 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 I would love for that to be the case. Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, but, but maybe not. I think this is why it's so important for us to honor One of our values here, one of our core values, uh, is that without honor and confrontation, you will not unearth the potential of those in your midst. So it's it's so important for us when we see something in somebody to to stop them and to say, Andoni just did this for me while we were worshiping. He just comes over and he says, I want to remind you of the gift that you are to this church. I'm like, oh. I need to be reminded of it. If it wasn't for people who'd spoken to my life and said, hey, I see this in you, and, and I, it's, it's, it's underdeveloped and it's in its infancy, uh, but develop it. If I hadn't heard those things, I maybe would have exchanged the truth for lies and fallen into a, a life of not being used by God. Now, notice the reason for this diversity. Look down at your Bibles, verse 12. It's this to equip his saints for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What is the point of these gifts? It's to build each other up to do works of service. We often think of empowerment as someone believing in me so that I can be my best self, right? It's like I wasn't empowered. Really what we mean by that is I'm not sure I was really valued there. And I guess that that could be part of what it means to empower people, but Paul sees the point here being that we serve more. (laughs) Anybody want to be empowered to serve more? Can I just get a show of hands real fast? Okay, we're empowering you guys to serve more. That's the whole point of these gifts. Now, maybe you're sitting here this evening and you see yourself in one of these gifts. You're like, that's totally me. Like, when you said that, it just so clicked with who I am. Great. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. If other people notice it in your life or not, if you believe the Holy Spirit's confirmed that in you, just start functioning in it. Your identity and your worth has already been settled, so start being a gift to the people around you by being who you already are. The point is that you inspire people to serve by serving them. (laughs) Or maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're like, I don't see myself in any of those things. 
Um, that's, that's honestly fine, too. Um, we see men and women down throughout the history of the church planting churches, doing evangelism, leading worship and prayer, hosting home churches, teaching, prophesying, healing, and leading. The point is that you're in relationship with Jesus, so ask him what he would have you do and just do it. Don't worry about the title. Don't worry about, like, do, do people see me this way? Just, just what are your convictions? Don't live on the expectations of others. I think with some of, this, some of this topic that we're talking about tonight, we've sanctified the fear of man in it, and we've been like, you know, I'm only going to function in that which, you know, people recognize in me. It's like, well, that's fine. But you know what Paul said? When he had the revelation of Jesus Christ happen to him, he took three years to himself just so that he would get discipled by God alone. <laughs> wow, what a plan. Now, the point of these gifts is to empower, but it's also to protect. Verse 14 says this. Look down at your Bibles. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. One of the roles of the church is protection from lies, period. Satan, the enemy of God, has many names in the scriptures, but one of the translations is that he is the slanderer. We like that. He's the slanderer. Now, what does that mean? What does slander mean? Well, legally, what slander means is it means that you make a false or damaging statement about someone. So primarily, think about this. What, he, what Paul is saying, or, or what the scriptures are, are telling us, is that the enemy's primary goal is to make an ident identity claim on you that is a lie, and that is why the truth about who you are matters so much. Paul uses the metaphor here of wind and waves to symbolize lies that come at us through human beings. And a 30, you know, back in the 90s, like a 30-second glance at the television wouldn't yield that much information. You'd be like, I'm stuck on a commercial. I'm not really sure what's going on. It's sort of fuzzy. Uh, but 30 seconds on Twitter today, and you will probably have 10 different passionate worldviews displayed instantly. Instantly. And the reality is this, is that popular opinion changes every day. Have you ever felt that? You're like, I used to make that joke, but now they're saying that I can't make that joke anymore. Or I used to say that thing, but I'm, I guess I'm not supposed to say that thing anymore. And it's like, boom, 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 just breakneck speed, right? Um, here's the thing. If you make your aim in life to be on the correct side of history, you will find yourself tossed and moved and shoved every which way until you completely lose the place of truth and peace in your life. Do you guys remember um, Pilate? There's this moment with Pilate where Jesus is about to be crucified. He comes before Pilate. And Jesus basically, you know, says, you know, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. And, and, and Jesus makes this comment about truth. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? What is truth? Pilate was not convinced that there was truth after a career of ignoring the truth in pursuit of popular opinion. The political spirit is the spirit that desires to wash your hands of anyone who's outside of popular opinion and constantly be putting on an image, always bending your will, always bending your image to whatever may be popular in a moment. And when you do that, you will entirely lose the sense of what is actually true and what your true identity actually is. What is the solution to wind and waves? What is the solution to the wind and the waves of culture which change on a dime? It's truth. Verse 15, look down at your Bibles. It says this. Instead, speaking the what? The truth in love, we will grow 
to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. When you speak the truth in love, guess what happens? Growth. See, truth doesn't change. And what I'm telling you this evening is that we cannot allow culture to be the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the teacher in our lives. Stop letting culture pasture you. What Paul is saying is this. Apostles, they cause you to think in heaven while you're on earth so you don't get tossed. Prophets, what they do is they give you hope so that you won't be taught hopelessness. Evangelists, they remind you of eternity and what is at stake for every soul that you come into contact with. Pastors, they help you devote yourself in full surrender to the king. Teachers, they help you to believe the truth rather than calling your doubt intellectual sophistication because it's not. I promise you this, the truth of the scriptures is a rock. Every other moral belief culturally has been carefully constructed depending on the social gospel of that particular day to deliver power to specific people groups. Don't play the game or you'll look like a baby. Paul's words, not mine. Okay? So, practically, at Saints Hill, how do we empower and protect? I love the Methodists. The, back in the day, the, when Jonathan Wesley first started Methodism, uh, they had this motto that they kind of ran with. And the motto was this, we're organized to beat the devil. Isn't that great? It's like, we're getting organized to destroy the works of the enemy. You know, one of the times Jesus is asked why he came, he's like, I came to destroy the works of the enemy. Doesn't that sound fun? It's like, I want to destroy some works of the enemy. Um, how are we organized to destroy the works of the enemy? Well, in an attempt to be as close to the text in the New Testament as possible, we see two offices of leadership within the church. Two offices of leadership within the church, primarily from the book of 1 Timothy. We see the two offices are this, elders and deacons. Um, and currently what we have is we have elders and we've been moving to having deacons as well within our church. Uh, the elders of this church are myself, they're Andoni, would you raise your hand just real fast? In fact, Andoni, would you come up here? And then Jim, uh, Andoni and Jim and myself are the elders of the church. Um, but as we have grown as a church, we've moved to a deacon model as well. Jim, you can come on up. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take a moment to pray over our uh, deacons in just, just a second. We're going to have them up, but I kind of want to share a little bit of the story. So when we first planted the church, we had what we called our core team. And um, our core team was basically a group of people from Bridgetown who um, Andoni and Jim were a part of and some, some other people who are here this evening were a part of. And there, were, there was a ton to do in the church. And with all of the things to do in the church, we just needed people just to just serve wherever they were needed. We're like, we need kids help tonight. Please come help and serve. Can you do it? And we had a core team that would step in. Now, um, as we've grown, we've had two things that have happened that, in our hearts that we've wanted to bring to bear on our church. One, we want to be close to, new to the New Testament structure of leadership uh, within the church. And we see that they appointed deacons for specific areas of service. And two, we just needed people to own different areas of service so that we didn't have to worry about it. We're like, is somebody making the coffee? Okay, Tyler, you're making the coffee. Thank you. You're coffee guy from now on, right? Uh, we just needed things to happen in the church, and we needed specific people to oversee teams. And it was the model that we saw within the New Testament. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite any, if you're a deacon, would you come on up, uh, up to the stage right here? We're going to um, pray over our deacons now, if you will. <laughs> come on up. Um, we're going to pray over our deacons and commission them. In Acts, it says that when the apostles uh, picked people to be various deacons, they actually prayed over them and anointed them for the task at hand. So here's what I'm going to ask you guys to do. I'm going to ask you just to extend a hand. These are our deacons. Um, would you actually just give a hand for these people? 
Yeah. Yeah, and we also have two other deacons, uh, Mitchell Retman and Kylie Retman, uh, who are unable to be here this evening. But I'm just going to go down the row a little bit and introduce them to you and what they're doing within the church. So this is Mike and Barbie right here. They go together. They're married. Many of you guys know Mike and Barbie. Um, they're just like pillars within the community here in Newburgh. And uh, they're going to be leading primarily a, a ministry of connections. Uh, we really are desirous to see um, you guys ministered to and served throughout the week. And so if something were to go wrong or you were to end up at the hospital or you were to need help or assistance in any way, Mike and Barbie are going to be leading a team of people who can reach, you could reach out to them, get connected with somebody from our church who can come and pray with you. Who, if you need help with, with this or that, they, they might be able to help you. And so we wanted to just take a step forward in caring for our church pastorally, and they are the perfect people for it. We're so grateful for you guys doing that. So. Um, and then we have Brianna Smith. Her name just changed. It's such a great thing. Officially changed. Okay, that's a good thing. It took Emily like a year or so um, before that actually changed. <laughs> um, and what Brianna is going to be doing is she's going to be our deacon over uh, pastorally caring for women in our church. Um, it, there's a lot of women in our church, and I'm sure not all of you want to meet with me. So uh, we have Brianna here um, who is going to help carry some of that burden. And she's open. I, I just completely trust her uh, to lead well in our church. She was my wife's roommate when we first met back when we were all like, I was like 21 when we first met, and uh, we've just grown up together, and I'm so proud of you. I'm so grateful for you being willing to step into this role. She's going to be organizing some events for women within our church as well, so can we give it up for her as well? And then we have her husband, Austin Smith, with that incredible beard, just so good. Um, Austin's already been functioning in this role, but he's going to be a de our deacon over our prayer ministry and our prayer team, uh, helping Andoni here organize it, and uh, eventually we're going to be bringing people onto the prayer team. Not quite yet, but eventually we'll be doing that, and, uh, and he's been just a huge help. I remember the first time I met Austin, you were in a completely different place a few years ago, and now you're married, and now you're walking in truth and freedom. It's just so beautiful, and I fully just put my trust in you to lead our prayer team so well. So let's give it up for Austin as well. And then we have, um, this is Abby Viegas, and uh, Abby is amazing. She is going to be, um, and has already been doing this really from the beginning, uh, our deacon over hospitality. So if you've ever had a little water bottle or a mint handed to you, or you've enjoyed any of the coffee or the snack set up out there, or you've been greeted when you've walked through the door, Abby's leading that team that does that. So can we just thank her for that as well? And then we have her husband, Phil Viegas, um, who is just a great friend of mine. We were on the same uh, youth, group, youth ministry team back at Bridgetown. And uh, Phil has been leading. Um, he's in the, you just got back from the Alpha Retreat, right? He's been our deacon over Alpha, which is a ministry that we have uh, really geared to asking the tough questions about life and about the gospel and Jesus and faith. So um, it's, it's just this open forum, this open space for you to really ask any question that you may have. So uh, can we just thank Phil for that as well? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over to Andoni and Jim. Would you just extend a hand? We're going to pray and commission these guys and anoint them for the task that they've been given. Yeah, Father, thank you so much for the team that you've given us today. I ask that you release a new mantle of authority and they can release the empowerment that you've given them, God. I ask that you do give them dreams and visions of what you have for them and, the, and how to see their team and how to see the saints that they're yeah. going to be equipping, God. Mm -hmm. We just release a new authority and we release... Um, yeah, supernatural healing and authority in, in everywhere that they go. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Just a, a verse from the beginning of Ephesians that he's teaching from right now for you guys. Um, And this is Paul speaking. He says, Therefore, I, a prisoner serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Be humble, be gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And always keep yourselves united in the Holy Spirit and bind yourselves together with peace. So, God, we would just pray that over them right now. And as they partner with you in the incredible things that you want to do here at Saints Hill and in this community and beyond, we pray over them that you would increase their faith, that it should increase their compassion, you'd increase their humility, you'd increase their courage. And when they open the scriptures, God, that you would increase their knowledge of yeah. you. Uh, we know... In the scriptures, you, you say that as we know Jesus better, that his divine power gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Mm -hmm. So we pray that you'd speak truth to them as they have that passion for your word. And we ask these things and commission them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, let's give it up for all of them as they go. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. And... Uh, yeah, it's a huge blessing to have a church that's organized to beat the devil. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, hey, as we end, what I want to do is I want to give a little vision for the leadership of our church and what I believe the role of all leaders who, find, who are in Christ actually is, whether it's in the church or outside of the church or at home. You know, I'm, I'm frequently asked this question, um, what is your discipleship strategy at Saints Hill? How are you making disciples at Saints Hill? And, and I, I suppose, like, the way that we would answer that currently, and I'm, this it has potential to change in the future, I would imagine. But um, what we're after is we want you to understand who you are in Christ and really how much he loves you. We really believe that the love of God can accomplish some incredible things in your life. We want you to walk in freedom through the truth, and we believe that when you do those things, you receive his love, you walk in freedom through the truth, that it will yield incredible discipleship passion and discipline to do the things that Jesus did. We're sort of what we're doing, this is an experiment in a sense, is we're making a wager that to have an encounter with him will give you the passion and direction you need to follow him fully. That's what we're trying to do. And so we have two aims as leadership, as elders and as deacons here at the church. Firstly is this, we have, our first aim is the ministry of pointing. The ministry of pointing. Here's what I mean. What qualifies anyone to lead is that they first follow him. We follow a king, and that is what qualifies myself and you to lead culturally. It is a frequent occurrence in many churches, though not in ours, thankfully, that people go to the pastor for what Jesus promised to be for them personally. He's like, I'm the good shepherd. They're like, I really could use meeting with another human. He's like, I'm the mighty counselor. They're like, I could use some counseling. I should talk to another human. He's like, I'm the prince of peace. They're like, I gotta get around somebody who's peaceful. He's like, I'm the everlasting father. It's like, I just got this deep father wound. 
And he's made these promises to us. And, and I think that part of the reason why people go to the pastor for what God has promised to be is that because many leaders in the church, they think that they're pointing to Jesus, but in reality, they're also pointing to themselves. And so they're doing this. They're like, the ministry of pointing. Isn't God great? But I'm pretty great too. My job is to not do this. My job is to do this. Any leader, your job is to not do this. Your job is to do this. Any parent, your job is to not do this. Your job is to do this. It's to point at him. My job as a pastor is not to solve the problem for someone or to become legalistic with the way of Jesus so that they could just figure it out on their own. It's to set the table for our most honored guest every week, the spirit of Jesus, and to push you into an encounter with him where your belief will flourish and you begin to trust him more. That's my job. Isaiah 9, uh, this is what it says about Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the what? The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Just a beautiful promise about who God is and what he promises to be for you. But I want you to just notice something. Whose throne is he reigning on? You would think that God would be like, yeah, David was good, but it's my throne. <laughs> on the throne of Yahweh. But it doesn't say that. It says that he will reign on David's throne. Why is that? Because the throne of David is to be the shape of Jesus' kingdom. Here's what I mean. I received this uh, text from one of our mentors, my wife and I's, um, Terry Rathke. She's a, a gal who's um, at Bridgetown. Her and her husband did our premarital, just fantastic people. And as she mused on Psalm 27, she wrote some of these things down. I just want to read this. She said, the focus of David's life was worship. He focused on one thing. This was his number one priority. Don't try to fit God into your plans. Make your plans around the priority of worship. David gives a wonderful description of worship. What he wants to do more than anything is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. There will he sacrifice with shouts of joy. He will sing and make music to the Lord. And, and Terry said this, she, says, she said, I've always been struck by the simplicity and focus of Saints Hill. And I say amen to this in your church, right? This is, what we, this is the ministry of pointing, constantly getting you guys pointing to him. Go to him. It, it, what's going on in your life? It doesn't matter. Go to him. He's ruling on the throne of David because this is the principle of his kingdom. It's face-to-face -face encounter, relationship with God. And that's what David enjoyed, and it's what we all get to enjoy because that's the shape of the kingdom we live in. We have the ministry of pointing, but also, secondly, we have the ministry of building big people, not big ministry. If you've been around for a little while, you may have heard us use this phrase, and what it means is that um, it is not our hope for a church organization that does a bunch of ministries, but for a people who do what Jesus paid, who do what Jesus paid for them to do and enabled them to do. Our mission statement is this. This is our mission statement as a church. Next slide. <laughs> Hopefully it's on there. Yeah. Uh, equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. 
And to us, these aren't just nice thoughts. These are the marching orders God has given us as leadership. It's to speak identity over you. It's to speak truth over you. It's to speak possibility over you every single week so that it gets in your vernacular and you start leaking truth and you start leaking Christ-like identity and you start leaking possibility over all the people around you so that when people get around you, they start dreaming bigger dreams for themselves than they had ever conceived of on their own. When people get around you, it's like they just carry this presence. It's like I get around them and my day gets better. What is that? Oh, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the hope of glory. Don't you want it? We win as the body of Christ when you make it your aim with whatever influence you have to see heaven come in your space. That's what a leader is. That's what a big person is when they, when they recognize, I'm not going to try to build something to make my name great. I'm going to take the, what you paid for on the cross, Jesus, what it means for me to be in Christ, and I'm going to walk in authority through that.